and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Then Jesus goes on in that sermon to the the end of the chapter, and Lord willing, we'll take um, that up next week. Let's just ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, we know that spiritual things can only be discerned by those who are spiritual, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would make us that this morning. That this isn't just a time to relax and let our mind drift, but that we would actually hear the voice of God addressing our lives as Jesus speaks to us, his disciples. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, we noted that Jesus uh, was a preacher. He said, actually, that that is what he came to do, to preach the good news. And uh, this morning, then, we have in the Gospel of Luke one of Jesus' sermons, And uh, we're just going to be looking at the first part of that. But uh, we're going to see already this morning that as Jesus, the Son of God, speaks divine truth into a fallen, sin-blinded world, uh, those words are intrusive and invasive. His his words are convicting and confronting. Uh, There was a time when uh, the Pharisees and scribes sent some people to, uh, some men, to where Jesus was teaching with the, the order to arrest him. And, and those men went and they heard Jesus teach and they came back and the Pharisees says, well, yeah, where's Jesus? I thought we said go arrest him. And they said, no man ever spake like this man. Uh, they were blown away by the teaching of Jesus. They, they realized that there was something absolutely unique about the, the words of Christ. And this morning, as we look at this uh, sermon, the beginning of it, we're gonna see that Jesus' words, they're, they're confrontive. They're, they're convicting, turns our world upside down. He's speaking to his disciples about what it means to be a disciple. If, if I were to ask you this morning, are, are you a disciple of Jesus? I think most of you would say, yes, I am. And you would say that sincerely. I think we have sort of the understanding that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're disciples, and, and that's true. It's true to a point. Because at the end of the sermon, we're going to see Jesus... Uh, Say those really strong words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you to do? It's like he's saying, I don't think you understand what that word means. I don't think you really understand what Lord means. You say Lord, Lord, and yet, uh, which means master, ruler, boss of your life, and yet I say do this, why do you do that, and then, and then call me Lord? So, the, the issue really isn't, do you think you're a disciple? The issue for all of us this morning is, does Jesus think we're his disciples? Does Jesus think so? Well, here in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is calling 12 disciples. He gathers his disciples together, and out from the, the, monk, the midst of them, the number of them, he calls 12 who are going to be apostles. These are going to be the leaders of the New Testament church. Uh, they are going to, their teaching will lay the foundation for the church that Christ is going to be building. 
Uh, they are going to explain, the apostles and their teaching are going to explain to all the rest of Christ's disciples what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Christ. So if you look at the Gospels and the, uh, the epistles that we have, it's all discipleship training as, as they're teaching people who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so these are the 12 apostles. Uh, This office um, died when they died. Uh, There are some who claim to be apostles or that the office continues. There's only one foundation established for the church. If if someone claims to be an apostle today, uh, ask them which foundation might he be building because it cannot be the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. And so after choosing these 12 men, Uh, Then Jesus immediately begins to teach them with the others about what discipleship really looks like. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And he begins by uh, sort of big picture things, talking about the values and principles of the kingdom of God. He's talking to people who've just been living their life and living it in a fallen world, living it as Jewish uh, believers, but, but... who do not really understand the nature of the kingdom of God. They think they do, but Jesus needs to help them see what it, what it really, um, what the principles and the values and the priorities of the kingdom actually look like. And so he, he, he creates these two ways of living, these two contrasting ways of life by using two contrasting categories. We could say category A and category B. Category A are... Uh, it, those who are poor and hungry and sad and hated. And category B is those who are rich, well-fed, happy, and popular. Now let me just ask you, of those two categories, which one would you prefer? Category A or B, would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or would you rather be rich, well-fed, happy, and popular? Now, now, many of you are struggling with this one because you know what the right answer is, but what's the honest answer? If someone's going to look at your time and your checkbook, what you dream about, what you watch on TV, what category would they say you are pursuing? See, if we're honest, all of us would have to admit, given a, given a choice, if, we, if we're given a choice, we, and if we look at our lives, the things that we, that we really are going after and desiring or grieving because we don't have it, we're really category B people. I think that's just often the truth, that we, we do want to be rich. We are rich. We like being rich. We like being well-fed. We, we want to be happy. We, in fact, we're, we're so committed to that that we think that God's committed to it. What's the, the number one belief about God that people have in the world? What God wants more than anything else is you to be happy. And we like to be popular. Nobody likes to be scorned. Nobody likes to be slandered. You don't like that when people talk behind your back and say nasty things about you. So we're category B people. Honestly. The problem, of course, is though that's the honest answer, it's the wrong answer. At least according to Jesus and at least in light of eternity. Jesus promises eternal blessedness for category A people and eternal woe for category B people. So how do we make sense of that? Well, let's start with Jesus calling his disciples. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray all night. He continued in prayer to God. Um, 
It's very interesting that Jesus would be such a man of prayer if you, rec- if you remember that he is God. Why does he have to pray about this? Doesn't he already know the divine will of God? Doesn't he know everything that he needs to know? Does he know whom he's going to choose? Of course he knows whom he's going to choose. He knew it before the foundation of the world. Uh, He intentionally called each of these 12 men individually to come and follow him. So why is Jesus praying? Well, he's praying because as a man, that's how he does life. He's not praying as a religious exercise. It's not a religious duty. Jesus prays because his life is to commune with his Father. He's calling home, right? He's talking to his father, and he's talking to his father in the conviction, not only that um, it honors his father when Jesus, as a man, communes with him, but he's, he's calling also in the conviction that, that there needs to be divine power at work here. He's, he's leaning on the father. He's engaged with the things of heaven. And he's praying. You have to know he's, he's praying that uh, God would bless them as they move forward. He's, 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 he's showing us here as a man that this is how we're to do life. We're to, we're to do life in communion with God, leaning on him. God is honored when we ask him for things. In fact, it's the only way to do life. Prayer is the way saints on earth do business in the halls of heaven. Samuel Chadwick uh, had a great quote on this. He says, the one concern, the one concern of the devil, if you ask, what's the devil most concerned about? What's he, what's he really, really worked up about? Chadwick says, the one concern of the devil is to keep saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Because when we pray, you see, the power of God is being engaged. And Jesus is now speaking with his Father and undoubtedly praying for these men as he's about to publicly choose them. He knows who they are. He knows how weak they are in the faith. He knows how fickle they are. He knows how little they understand. He knows how proud they are. He knows everything about them. They are no match for the enemy. They're powerless. They're helpless. But he prays for them in the full confidence that God, his Father, will give all that is necessary for these men to be able to accomplish the task for which Jesus was calling them. When God calls, he equips. It's wonderful to know that Jesus prays for us this way. He knows you're not up to it. He knows you're not capable. He knows how proud and ignorant and fickle you are. So how come you're still a Christian? Because Jesus prays for you. And how do you ever make any progress in life? Because Jesus prays for you. It's a wonderful assurance. Well, he selects these 12 men. We have the list here. We have the names. You might notice Peter is the first in all the lists in the gospel. Peter always comes first because he's sort of seen as the leader of the New Testament church, particularly in Jerusalem. And Judas Iscariot always comes last because of his betrayal, because of his sin. But as you look at the name, at the list as a whole, you realize this is a motley crew. This is not a dream team that Jesus has assembled here in any sense of the, of the word. They're a ragtag, common group of uneducated men. For the most part, they're fishermen. One of them has just retired from the tax collector business, which is the most despised business in Jerusalem. Uh, some of them are very young. John the, uh, the Apostle is probably in his very early 20s, if that. 
No one looking at these men would have said, oh yeah, I can see why he chose them. The religious leaders are probably saying, what a novice, what an amateur. I mean, look, these are not, this is not disciple material. Uh, the, the, the leading root, the rabbis and teachers of, of Israel would be looking for the, the straight-A students. They'd be looking for the, the, the uh, top-of-the-class guys, right, coming out of the schools and, and universities. Now, that's not this group. But Jesus called them. He called them. And it's the calling of God that creates a New Testament disciple. Not training, not experience, not wisdom. It's the calling of God. That's it. So the first and most important question to ask of yourself, if you consider the question, am I a disciple? Has God called you? Has God called you? Have you heard the voice of Jesus through his word, by his Holy Spirit? Has God called you to repent, confess your sin? Has God called you to a true faith in Christ so that you, you want to know him, you want to serve him, you want to follow him? You see, if you haven't been called yet, you can't be a disciple. No matter how much you try to do the lessons and keep the teaching, you can't be a disciple until you've been actually called by God. But if you've been called by God, you're a disciple. You're maybe a... a Struggling disciple, a new disciple, a not, a not a very great disciple. You're a disciple if God has given you that call. God has given you that new heart. And, and when you're a disciple, you say, then God goes to work training us. Have you felt like you're in school sometimes? In the things of heaven that, that God is teaching you? Yeah, that's, that's what it means to be a disciple. So that's what Jesus does here. And the lesson begins with a very convicting um, truth. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor for yours of the kingdom of God, and blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied, and blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh, and blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So those are Christ's categories for the blessed life. Poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. And he means it. He meant every word of it. He really believes that those who are experiencing these things ought to be leaping for joy. So how are we going to get there? How do, we get, how, do we, how do we come to see these things the way Jesus sees them? Well, let's just look at them together. Blessed are you who are poor. In Matthew's gospel, it's blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I think that's exactly the same meaning here. There is nothing inherently virtuous or meritorious in being poor. God cares for, has compassion for the poor. But the poor in spirit, I believe, is what Jesus is speaking of. This is, these are those whom he came uh, to preach the good news to. Isaiah 61, when Jesus starts his ministry, he claims Isaiah 61, that's my mission. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Who are they? Well, they're, they're those who are, they sense the poverty of their righteousness. They sense that they're not, they're not making it. They're, they're not doing very well uh, when it comes to obedience and righteousness and holiness, if, if God were actually to deal with them according to what they've done and said and what they think, it would, not be, it would not be good. So to be poor in spirit is like Peter on his knees in the boat saying, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man as Jesus exposed his, his heart. 
To be poor in spirit is like the leper coming and collapsing at the feet of Jesus with nothing but his stench and his need. It's all he has. That's being poor in spirit. It's, it's, it's to be Levi, the tax collector, a man who knew he was an abysmal failure when it came to the things of God. Blessed are those people who are able to recognize and acknowledge the truth about their heart when it comes before the law of God. It's interesting, when Jesus went and had dinner with the tax collector, with Levi's friends, all his other tax collectors, he's having dinner with some of the wealthiest men in town, no doubt about it. These men lined their pockets in their trade. So he's having, these are the wealthiest guys in town, and yet they are the beggars of the town spiritually. They're poor in spirit. Blessed are the beggars. Why are they blessed? For theirs is the kingdom of God. It just absolutely turns religion right on its head. See, religion said blessed are the moral, blessed are the disciplined, blessed are those who figured it out, blessed are those who are just moving on, the accomplished uh, people in, in the things of God. Well, praise God, he does transform us. Praise God, we're not what we once were. Praise the Lord, that's true. But the, the, the unique thing about it, as you grow as a Christian, you become more and more poor in spirit. As you grow in holiness, you more and more are, are sensing the truth of your heart and grieving it and, and more and more delighting in coming to Jesus like the leper, like Peter, like the forgiven tax collectors. We know we don't belong here, you see. So, but why are we blessed? Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not someday in the sweet by and by. Right now, yours is the kingdom. That's the beautiful thing is, as you confess your sin and you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, you see, repenting sinners gain the righteousness of Christ. And when you've gained the righteousness of Christ, then you gain the kingdom. You're invited in. And when, you're in the, when you have the kingdom, you have an inheritance with Jesus, you have an eternal reward. So if that is true of you spiritually, if you actually possess the kingdom of God, theirs is the kingdom. If that's true of you, you can rejoice even in the most abject physical poverty. Because if you have very, almost nothing whatsoever in terms of worldly wealth, but you have the kingdom, you have more than all the gold this world can afford. One thing that's impressed me when I went to Haiti, people have, they just have nothing. Their kids are playing with just stones and sticks. They got nothing. And yet the joy, there was more joy just among the believers there than you could have possibly imagined. They, they, theirs was the kingdom. They were counting on it. It's absolutely true. Are you poor? Blessed are you. Happy are you. If you're poor. Blessed are those who are hungry now. They shall be satisfied. And again, it's primarily spiritual hunger. Blessed are you if you're hungry for holiness. Blessed are you if you're hungry to be made like Christ. If, if, it, if you just sense that those hunger pains of, of wanting to be changed, wanting to grow. You, you, you're, you're yearning for the day when sin is gone. You're, you're hungry for the honor of God in the world. Blessed are you. You will be satisfied. Every one of those desires, as strongly as you feel them, as painful as it might be, everyone is going to be completely satisfied. 
Do you weep now? Does it hurt to be a saint? It should hurt to be a saint. It should hurt sometimes a lot. Because you weep about your sin. You grieve the brokenness of the world around you. You mourn the pains and trials of loved ones in a fallen world. Do you, do you, do you long to see everything made right again? Do you long to be yourself made right? Are tears a part of your discipleship? Blessed are you, Jesus said, because you're going to laugh. You will laugh. It's, have you ever think of heaven that way? Just, just laughing. I was talking with someone just this morning. They shared just some of the amazing, miraculous thing God is doing in their life, and I just started to laugh. Heaven's going to be a lot of people laughing, just laughing. This, this is impossible. It cannot be this good. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Weeping may remain for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So blessed are those who are happy, who are uh, weeping now. Blessed are you. Happy are you when you're weeping now. And blessed are you when people scorn you and revile you. They hate you. They slander you on account of the Son of Man. Friends, that's happening more and more today. People are publicly calling the Christian God immoral and publicly saying that Christians are dangerous. Christians are worthy of being reviled, uh, publicly reviled, publicly scorned. I saw a little video, tip, a video clip of uh, Richard Dawkins uh, at, at, um, in Washington, D.C., I think, just telling the, his audience, uh, just the way to deal with Christians is laugh at them. We need to scorn them publicly. We need to humiliate them. We need to mock them publicly. Well, it ain't going to work, Richard. Because the more you mock and scorn, you see, the more Christians laugh. The more they, they leap for joy. This is the amazing thing about it. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. You just hit mother load is what Jesus is saying. When they're mocking you for Christ's sake, when they're scorning you for Christ's sake, you just got to the great stuff, the good stuff. This does not make sense to us. We get scared by thoughts of persecution. Jesus said... Awesome. Isn't that what he's saying? He's not saying it won't be so bad. You're going to be okay. Nobody will hurt you. That's not what he says. He says they're going to persecute you. They will hate you. They will put some of you to death. He promises it. And when that happens, leap for joy. That's the command. Rejoice in that day and, and leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. And Jesus knows what he's talking about. He was there. So great is that reward that Paul, though he had not seen it with, with the eyes of faith, he could say that the suffering of this life is not worth being compared to the glory that awaits us. No one in heaven will even think to ask the, the, the Christian who suffered the most of any other. You won't go to Paul and say, Paul, really, was it really worth it? Nobody's going to ask a martyr Christian, was it worth it? The glory of heaven will be so unbelievably overwhelming. The only thing that maybe some will ask is, I wish I, I, wish I could have suffered like that. You see, the key to seeing things from the way Jesus sees them, we have to see it from his perspective. Jesus is always evaluating things from the perspective of eternity. He's always looking at things from the perspective of the glory of heaven. 
So blessed are those who hunger now and who weep now and are reviled in this life now because there is a, there's another time coming. There's another place. There's an eternity. And so those who suffer and are hungry and weep now, man, what they have coming to them. Blessed are you. You lucky people. You blessed people. You outrageously privileged people. Because there is a fullness and a laughing, a laughter and an honor that happens in heaven for you that is everlasting, it's glorious, it's unimaginable, it's beautiful beyond telling. See, once you understand the, the fleeting nature of this life and the everlasting glory and beauty in, uh, of that life and the honor of that life, it changes the way you look at things. And that's why Jesus now speaks woes to those who have the things that the world thinks really matters. And the woes here are not judgment. It's not condemnation. It's worse than that. It's pity. It's sadness. He, Jesus is, is going, oh, how sad. How awful. How, how, oh, how sad you who are rich in this world. For you've received your consolation. You, you, you went and you got that nice new thing, whatever you wanted, and you've built that nice new house that you wanted, and you got all the stuff that they're showing on the TV, and, and you're rich with self-satisfaction. You're rich with self, uh, self-righteousness. Oh, how sad. Because, you see, that's all you'll get. That, that's all you get Forever. You've, you've received your consolation. You, you, you poor thing, when, when Jesus returns and all the glory and splendor and wealth of heaven is, is, is magnif- manifest and you see it and you're going to say, oh, I want that. And, and Jesus is going to say, well, no, 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 you, you had yours. You had yours. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing more for you. See, that's the story of, of Luke 16, the story, if you remember, of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he had the, the stuff of this life. He, he ate well, lived in a nice place, and, and then there was Lazarus outside at the gate, and then they both died. And Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, and the, the rich man is in the torment of hell. And he, and he sees Lazarus there, and he says to Abraham, Master, just send Lazarus with one drop of water on his finger. So he can put it on my tongue. That's all he wanted. But the answer he received was, you've already had your riches. Abram said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and and you're in anguish and there's a chasm fixed that no one can cross. How much comfort was all the good things that he enjoyed in this world after five minutes in eternity. How, how much comfort do you think that the, 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 the successful people, the wealthy people in this world, how much comfort will they take from all their, all their self-satisfaction and their self-righteousness and all their stuff? How much comfort one minute into eternity? No, just no comfort at all. 
See, riches, riches really aren't even much of a comfort in this life, much less the life to come. Alistair Begg tells the story of conduct, conducting a wedding ceremony of a young man, and this man had just begun six months ago as a stockbroker, and the guy, uh, Alistair, asked him, tell me, uh, what's the most, um, just something that happened in these last six months that's really struck you? And the, and, the, and the young man said, well, I had a guy come in and just opened my biggest account. He put down $30 million he wanted me to invest. And uh, Alistair said, well, why did that get your attention? And the young man says, well, when that man went to the restroom, his, his wife confided the true nature of their life. Uh, their marriage is in shambles. Uh, she confessed that the money was a total nuisance. They were purposeless in their existence, held together only by the money, and their biggest concern were the arguments between their children over who was going to get what. Do you want to get rich? Do you want stuff? Do you want the comforts and conveniences of this life, is that really, really what you want? Is, is that really what you want to live for? Think about it. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about wanting things or even having things. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. What he's trying to do is to create a passionate desire for the right things. That if God gives us financial blessings, that's his right to do so. And if he takes them away, it's his right to do so. Whether we have them or we don't have them, it's really not that big a deal. What we, what we want are the, we want the wealth of eternity. That's what we want. That's where our heart is set. Jesus is not condemning wealth. We know that there are wealthy people in the Bible. Blessed of God, Lydia was a wealthy woman who used her money to further the kingdom of God. But what he, he just pointed out the, the incredible sadness, the, 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 the awfulness of having the stuff of this life and acting as if, if, that is, if that's what matters, and then you die. And it's all you got. It's all you get. You see, how cheaply you've sold your soul. That's what, Jesus is just grieving it. It would be easier if he, were, if he were condemning it. You could just say, well, it's just a rule. What does he know? But when he's grieving it, when, when he says to you, how awfully sad you want, to, you want to use your life for that? That's what he's doing. See, he's trying to get at our idols, isn't he? And he just wants you to see how sad, how sad. What idol are you pursuing? Do you want comfort and convenience? How terribly sad for you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If that's what you're living for, there's coming a day where you won't have any of it. Is pleasure your idol? You like a good time? How awfully sad for you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Is life just a big joke? You just, you're, the, you're the funny guy? You like to be entertained? How sad. Reputation, is that what it's about for you? How awful for you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You see, friends, eternity changes things. It changes things profoundly. It just, it just exposes that the idols that we're living for are not just wrong, they're stupid. They're, they're just unbelievably stupid. You've got one life to live. I've got one life to live, and it is going by just like that. And then it stops. And it's, it's the day of accounting. 
You see, the truth be told, Jesus grieves over the things that we so often pursue, and we grieve them only when we lose them. So the question to be asked is, how can we be saved? That's the question to ask. How do Category B people get saved? If you understand what Jesus is saying, that's the question. If, if, if you're uh, in Luke 18, if you remember the story of the rich man who came and said, Lord, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He said, I've been doing that since I was a child. Great. Then go sell everything you have and um, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away sad for he was extremely rich. Category B guy. He liked his stuff. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? And you know what Jesus' answer was? With man, it's impossible. But it's possible with God. You see, the point is that you can't change your heart. You, you do, I do, by nature, we love all the wrong things. We like popularity. We like to be well-fed. We like to be well-thought of. We like, we like to be happy. We like those things. We pursue those things. Only, you see, only God can change a heart so that it loves what it ought to love. The fundamental problem with our heart, it's an affection problem. We love the wrong things. Keller says that discipleship is not just a matter of bending your will to Jesus' will. It's melting your heart into a whole new shape. That's exactly right. That's why Jesus begins here in Discipleship 101. It's, it's having your heart melted into a whole new shape. It's not learning how to keep the rules, not learning how to do the duties, not learning how to clean up your act. It's actually having a different heart so that you start to love different things. You love what God loves. You value what Jesus values. You really value them. You delight in them. So how do we wrap up? Well, you see, friends, most people don't get, they don't understand Jesus' sermon. To worldly people, it looks like a list of things to do they have no interest in. To religious people, it looks like a list of things to do so that they can earn their way with God, so they can maybe uh, enhance themselves, get some moral improvement. It's neither one of those things. These are not tips on how to be a better person. This is, this is exhibit A in the fact that you cannot save yourself. You can't do it. You cannot in your, truly in your heart love poverty, love hunger, love weeping, love slander, and delight, rejoice in it. Have you ever seen a person actually do this and say to yourself, I don't think I could do that? It's probably true. These things are impossible with men. You can't break your love affair with idols. You can't do it. Stop going to church trying. It's only possible with God. It's only possible with God. Tim Keller again says this. There's only one way that the root of your personality can be changed, and that is by an experience of love. Only when your heart experiences love from a new source beyond anything it's ever known before will your heart start to move toward that source and begin to be deeply changed. It's what the Holy Spirit actually does in our life. Shows us the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God for us in Christ, and begins to do that transforming change in our heart. And so, friend, the question is, is that happening? 
Is that what you want to happen? Do you want God to do that work? Do you want to follow him that way? Do you want to pursue these things? Are you willing to have Jesus turn your life upside down? Or or truth be told, it would be right side up, wouldn't it? Then God today, friend, is calling you to do, pursue that course. Maybe I just asked you this morning, what... Where in your life right now is God calling you to confess sin, change course? Where right now, some idol that's been exposed, that's been revealed, that God wants you to die to that idol as your heart is actually being changed. And, and what, whatever made you love that idol, your heart's being changed, and now you love Jesus Christ, and you just can't go there anymore. Maybe there's an offense that God wants you to forgive. What is it that Jesus is calling to you this morning as you seek your life in Christ and, and you want to be a disciple who lives in faith and obedience, friend, this is the day. Confess it. Turn to him. Believe the gospel. And believe that Jesus Christ is able in his power to absolutely transform your life. Amen. Father in heaven, uh, there are things in every one of our lives that Jesus would point to and say, how sad. And they would be things that we, that we love, things that we, that we pursue, things that we delight in, things that we take comfort in. And Jesus, we ask that today you would expose those things. It's the most gracious thing you could do. because we're wasting our life when we pursue them. We're not thankful for what we have when we hunger for what we don't have. We're not, we're not trusting in you when we're panting after the things of this world. To whatever extent the love of this world is in us, the love of the Father is not in us. And so, Father, I, I just pray for your beautiful, purifying, revealing, exposing grace so that we can learn how to be disciples who love the things that Jesus loves and values the, thing, the things that Jesus values. That our, our life would really be transformed. We'd be changed. We'd, we'd be different. Jesus, you are able to do this. It's what you came to accomplish. And I thank you that you're still doing this beautiful work today. It's impossible with men, but it's absolutely possible with God. Lord, maybe some here this morning have given up hope that they could actually be transformed and changed. And I thank you, Lord, that that's a lie. That the truth is, as we turn to you, confess our sin, very specifically acknowledge our need. And then turn to you as the solution and the answer. Father God, you're able to do more than we could ask or imagine. And so I pray, Lord, as you've been doing that work already, continue it, deepen it, broaden it. May the gospel be the power of God to our salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.